Okay, boom. Welcome back to another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here with fellow Alpha Vedic co-founder, Dr. Bear Paul Lando. We have two amazing guests today on the show. Um, first, we have Richard LaPlante, uh, whose lifelong study of strength training began with the fall from a tree when at 10 years old, he suffered a hangman's fracture, more commonly known as a broken neck. His rehabilitation included twice weekly workouts in the school gymnasium using a barbell and a set of dumbbells. This was his introduction to progressive resistance exercise and the beginning of a journey that has taken him from weight training to yoga, from Pilates to an 18-year sojourn with the Japanese Karate Association and into one of the most renowned boxing gyms in Europe. He has learned from and trained with masters. For the past 20 years, he has given back his knowledge of strength and functional fitness to men and women of all ages, from athletes to doctors. His gym is devoted to the practice of health and wellness and real strength. The Lost Art of Breathing chronicles his electric, uh, his excuse me, his eclectic journey back to the basic substance of life, which is breath. Uh, how are you today, Richard? I'm, I'm breathing. My Very, keep breathing. I'm breathing. Very good. And then we also have Mark here, Mark Herodin. Uh, who is uh, a spiritual counselor working with people to transform their lives and awaken their spiritual nature. Mark started his own spiritual journey at the age of 20 when he began working with spiritual teacher John Roger, a New York Times bestselling author. He was so moved and inspired by his experience that he decided to serve others as he had been served. He then set about learning all that he could about the spiritual and practical worlds with a view to healing, awakening the soul, and ushering in a higher way of living. Towards increasing his ability to assist others, Mark studied extensively. He became an ordained minister in the Church of the Movement of Spiritual Inner Awareness in 1997 and spent five years working closely with John Roger on his personal staff. He also studied towards a master's in the spiritual psychology program at the University of Santa Monica and the master's of spiritual science program at the Peace Theological Seminary and College. Welcome, Mark. How are you today? Doing fine. Thank you for having me. Well, we are extremely excited about today's show. I think we're going to go down some uh, interesting pathways of thought. Bear, want to kick it off? Sure, why not? <laughs> Hi, you guys. How's everybody doing? It's great to Mark, see you. Uh, Mark, good to see uh, an old friend on here. Uh, it's been a while, and uh, you and I have had some travels together, so I'm really looking forward to the chat. And Richard, great meeting you the other day. Uh, you know, when Mark introduced us and uh, when we're through chatting, we all said, geez, that would have been a great podcast. And, uh, but we kind of took off and stayed on the uh, phone with each other for a while, had a good time. So we'll do the same thing again today. Um, Mark, I also uh, know you're not a bad tennis player as well uh, and uh, have a good history in coaching and playing. And, but anyway, I'll let you uh, tell your story and, uh, uh, I'd like to just kind of sit back and pick your brains today and, and uh, have fun doing that. So, Mark, go ahead, start it off. Sure. So I guess, I guess I'll use my story to kind of con how we've all connected here. And, uh, yeah, my, my, my first incarnation this life, I guess, was that of a tennis player. And probably I did that to get out of school more than anything because I was dyslexic, didn't understand what was going on. And what I also had was a foul temper that, that, that went with it. So it kind of kicked off a path of discovering what, you know, how do you manage oneself and how do you manage your feelings and your thoughts and all these things. And, and I came across a, 
a personal development program back in the 90s called Insight Seminars, which kind of, you know, it brought awareness into my field and, and that of a loving heart. And it's, it's a journey that has never stopped for me. And, and along that journey, I found you, Bear, and uh, that's 20 years ago now. And I was working with the spiritual teacher at the time, John Roger, and we were looking at a lot of different things. I mean, we probably had 50 doctors back then that we'd travel around the world and look at oneself and look from the scientific perspective, the spiritual perspective, from food to exercise to, you know, the food got really deep into stuff around what I call food reflectors and their energy fields and how they impact our body and consciousness and how that impacts the world. And I mean, there was lots of tangents that we looked at, that's for sure. And coming across your your space back then, I hadn't met, I remember walking into your office the very first time and my body took a jolt. I went, oh my gosh, this is like the healthiest guy I've ever met in my life. And <laughs> you're someone who has taken a, a tremendous deep dive in your own journey around not just health, but looking at the world and how it operates. And, and I've always had deep respect for uh, you, you holding for the truth of what you, you're working with and what works and what doesn't. You're an absolute true scientist. I'm very grateful that I know you and, and the, that, uh, that we're reconnecting here. And from all of that intensity, I, I uh, took off to Europe and decided to abandon all of that world <laughs> and move into indulgence and understand hedonism and good food and wine and, and uh, experience the European de delicacies. <clears throat> and that took me off into another journey. And then I went into finance and tried to understand the economic worlds. And kind of coming full circle, I ended up back in Ojai, uh, California. And about a year and so ago, I came across Richard and I got fat and didn't care about my body so much and was kind of had my own resentments around how the world was spinning and looking for my own journey again and look, certainly looking for how do I get healthy again. And I didn't want to be a gym rat and I didn't want to play tennis and I kind of got into golf, which is not exactly exercise. It's like expensive marbles, you know. So. <laughs> I came across Richard and I was completely inspired again to, um, to ex not just exercise, but to live. And I'm very grateful for him in my life at this time. So he's been supporting me in uh, rejuvenating my body through breath. Um, I would consider Richard is on an enlightened path uh, that is corresponding with exercise and that is always appealing to me. So, you know, maybe I'm the, the conduit here of bringing us all together, but I, what I really care about this podcast is that you guys get to riff in such a way that great information is brought forward and people get to hear about the wisdoms that you've been working on. And, um, you know, what, what I also respect is this is not the seven habits package. You know, it's not, it's not some uniform that you're selling. It's really, you guys are true scientists around how, how and what's going on with uh, the mind, body, spirit experience. 
So I'll let you guys take it from here, but thank you for letting me tee you up here. And hopefully my story um, is just an example of how people can jump into your worlds and, and uh, benefit. So take it away, guys. Well, that was great, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for all that. And um, Mike, go ahead, jump in. You had something to say, but then uh, we'll let uh, Richard take it away from there. I, well, I was just going to say, my uh, I have a very parallel story too, Mark, is in terms of how I uh, met Bear and um, you know my path towards health. Uh, very similar uh, as far as the hedonism thing and all that too. So, cheers to that! And uh, yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's good fun, and it's important to uh, go out and have those experiences and discover yourself uh, in all these different avenues, but. Um, we're now at the time, I think, where it, it's time to button up and time to really um, uh, everybody in this world, you know, figure this stuff out because um, the, the time is now and we're seeing it all around us. So, uh, yeah, uh, Bear, take it from there. Uh, Richard, I'm going to pass it off to you. Tell us about what you're doing. All right. Um, <laughs> well, as Mike said, it started when I was a little kid and broke my neck and I had no idea that that was going to be the impetus for a whole lifetime of, of exercise. And at one point during the exercise, I got, I thought, well, it just can't be physical. This exercise has to also be mental and spiritual. This was early on in my life. I remember buying yoga books when I was preteen being just fascinated by the postures these guys or these women were in and then i'd read about meditation and i'd lie under my bed and try to get into a trance which got me out of sunday school because no one could contact me but um as i progressed i went into from progressive resistance exercise which i've maintained always my my thing is based upon resistance exercise i have coupled it with breathing I'm thinking that progressive resistance size has to be a yoga, a union, a breath and movement. So I've always done that. That's been my background, sort of my foundation, keeps the body together and functional. But then on top of the foundation, I was fascinated with martial arts. I went into Japanese martial arts in my late teens. Uh, realized early on that I was never going to be a Kamite freestyle champion or anything like that, but I found the discipline. I was good, but I wasn't great. But it became more than being tough or fast or competitive. It became more meditative to me, just the perfection of the movement. And I stayed with that for, well, well in my 40s, and I got an injury. I got my knee injured. And... Uh, that kind of led into boxing. It was a strange transition because there was a fellow at the dojo who was particularly talented. And I interviewed him. I used to work as a journalist for a magazine, a fighting artist, it was called. And he said, you know, the problem with martial arts, he said, the traditional stuff, there's no money in it. And I thought, yeah, you'd be a great fighter. You'd be like Marvin Hagler. So I had a friend who was a pro fighter. This is when I lived in England, in London. And I 
brought this guy up to my friend and he said, you know, he's going to need some foundation as an amateur. Of course, I didn't think so. I thought, no, the way this guy hits, he could just go in and knock everybody out. But my friend introduced me to an amateur gym, an amateur club. Uh, and he said it was the greatest boxing coach in England. And I believe the fellow is, was. And I went in there and the first thing that I said, well, this is going to be different than your karate. I said, why is that? He said, well, people get hurt here. And I thought, well, they get hurt in karate too, and they actually do, but it generally isn't the intention. Whereas you get into a boxing ring and the intention is make the other guy unconscious. And I remember my first three rounds because I, of course, had to get into it too. You know, I was in my 40s and my guy was only in his early 20s. I just, I had to learn it. And I remember the first three rounds and I thought it was terrible. Terrible <laughs> three rounds. He put me in with two of the guys who were told to take it easy on me. So they were basically being defensive. And I got out of that ring and I said, How do they do it? How does anybody go 12 rounds? And he said, Well, first of all, you've got to learn to breathe. And I said, Well, I've heard this before, by the way, from the guy who started me strength training when I was 10. You've got to learn to breathe. And I thought, Oh, here we go again. And I thought, and Karate? I thought, Why not to breathe? He said, No, boxers breathe through their nose. And it started me on this thinking of evolution about, in thought evolution about breathing. And what I thought, yeah, I've done yoga, I did Pilates, progressive resistance, Shotokan, karate, now I'm boxing. And what joins them all together is the breath. And that's kind of the beginning of my real journey about 30 years ago into, into just. Breathing. I thought if you strip it all away, you strip away, say, okay, I've hurt my knees, so I'm not a great kicker. I don't want to kick. But what, what did I get out of 20 years of Shotokan Karate? What did I get? Well, I got a level of awareness. It's an awareness you get. I'll call it samurai awareness. And what's samurai awareness based on? It's based upon the breath, the calming of the mind, to actually see what's going on at any time. I'm, probably rambling here so you can cut me in or off or whatever, but it all came down to be the breath. And it's not that I still don't do progressive resistance because I like having a muscular body. And as we get older, we lose so much muscle mass per, I think it's three to 5% per decade after 30 years old, if we're not training. So yeah, I still do that. I still like to hit because I grew up hitting. It's like Mark with a tennis racket. I like to hit. But behind all that, the thing that holds it together, the glue, is the breath and the use of the breath. So that's how I got into my method of training. Through, it's very eclectic. I didn't get in through one, it wasn't through martial arts, it wasn't through yoga, it wasn't through strength training, it was through everything until what I distilled was it was all about breathing. There you have my little story. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I've had the same experience with martial arts and training and, and even going back to old sports before I was in the martial arts, realized that uh, without knowing it, I was already just intuitively incorporating a lot of martial arts principles uh, to kind of hit a higher level of my game. And uh, then later became more conscious of it, you know, when I went into formal training and, you know, I, I kind of look at it as, uh, you know, the mind being the driver and the breath being the vehicle. And when you learn how the, the different techniques of breathing, which I know you have a good level of expertise in, 
then uh, you can accomplish so much more and tailor your breathing to whatever goal you want to achieve. So, um, yeah, uh, I'd, I'd like to just hear more about your system and how you coach other people to do that. And then Mark, jump in anytime because I know that uh, you're doing this too. And if you can share your experiences with the techniques as well. Yes, I would love to. You start, Richard. All right. Okay. When someone comes to me, and uh, I coach athletes, and I, I also coach Parkinson's people. And the reason I began coaching Parkinson's, well, I started about 14 years ago when a fellow came up to me at a swimming pool public, or my athletic club pool, and asked me if I teach him how to box, because he'd heard that I was a boxing coach in London. And I couldn't figure out why this guy, he had the tremor. I couldn't figure out what's he want to learn boxing for. And I didn't know at the time that this boxing, rock steady boxing had started, I don't know where in Chicago maybe, but uh, he came to my gym and I started coaching him in boxing. I started to figure it out what it was about neuroplasticity. But the thing that I told him to begin with and the thing that I tell everybody when they come, whether they want to learn to hit or whether they want to learn, you know, to lift or to pull, is breathe through the nose. I'm a big, as I said, I learned that in boxing. How do you get through 12 three-minute rounds? You breathe through the nose. And there's a reason to breathe through the nose. It's a more efficient style of breath. It's a more efficient system of breathing. The nose was meant for breathing. So that would be my first principle, no matter what, you're doing no matter what physical practice, whether it's yoga or weightlifting, breathe through the nose. That, that, that's number one there. But you probably know that. So one of my experiences with Richard is he has a gym slash dojo in his garage that's beautifully put together because he has great aesthetic taste. And uh, when we started working out, you know, I was still in my hedonist phase and the truth is I'm still probably working my way out of the, that way of life. Um, but one of the things that I recognize very quickly, kind of like a sensei master, is there's no talking in terms of conversation. It's just getting straight into the discipline. And that was very appealing to me of... Um, really getting focused and then the the breathing techniques through the nose brought uh first of all i had to really go in and quieten the mind like a meditation and i'm, I'm i've been a meditator since i was 15 years of age um and it brought me present where the mind would start to uh quieten and the body as richard would express is like getting a an injection of um, or a hit of uh, my lack of better words would be goodness. And I, I always walk out of my training situations with Richard feeling better, feeling clearer, feeling more alive, ready to take on the day. It's not something that we need to spend two hours of the day doing. It's something that can take 20 to 30 minutes that involves these consistent breathing techniques and Richard has come across this, um, the stick, which I'd like you to talk about, Richard, around how you use this stick 
to kind of uh, facilitate the breathing process. Uh, one, it's, a, it's kind of an aesthetic, beautiful stick, you know, and I think you started with the broomstick. Um, but it's, it's been a method that is uh, highly helpful to me uh, in terms of just facilitating breathing and getting into this state of being. So um, why don't you talk about how you came across that, Richard, and, and how that showed up for you and where that's going. All right. First time I ever saw a stick used was in the dojo with the Japanese, and they'd actually carry a stick around and wipe you with it if your form was off. But I, I, there was something about it that caught my eye. They'd also hold it above their heads sometimes and demonstrate a technique. And I thought of it as, you know, it's a linear object, a stick. Well, a linear object can help align the body. So I thought, well, if you hold the stick out in front of you, if you're lopsided, it, the stick will be lopsided. So I thought if you hold it out and you make it perfect, and this really applies to the Parkinson's group I work with, because they lose alignment and balance. So I thought the stick is a great balancing tool. It also is something that, as you bring it up, naturally opens the rib cage. So you can have a complete breath with the stick from down to up. The other thing, and I do have my sticks behind me, and I'm prepared to use them. So the other thing is static contraction, isometric exercise. It, the old Charles Atlas, push your hands together and tone your chest. Doesn't necessarily make you increase strength like progressive resistance, but for rehab and just to keep where you are to maintain strength, static contraction is great, but you can also use a stick for dynamic resistance. So the more I play with these sticks, I'm gonna get one, hold on, hold on. This is my latest stick incarnation. I have a great stick maker. Also, if you, I'm looking at myself and the thing looks like I'm on fire, but turn um, the sun from the window. So say you take the stick like this, right? Let me just show you simply. So I've got my stick like this. And I always am very, I tell you from all the martial arts and stuff, I'm very form oriented. So even here I have a form with the index finger under the thumb. So I'm aware of where my hands are on the stick. I'm aware that I'm attached to it. The same as I'm aware that my feet are attached to the floor. So I've got these connections going on. And a lot of my stuff is not uh, purposely, but I, it compares to yoga sometimes. I think, wow, it's like a yoga. It's a different kind of yoga. So it's sort of easier for me because I don't have to get into pretzel forms. However, I'm like this and say I want to work on my back. So I'll breathe in and then on the out breath, I just pull the stick apart. It's a simple contraction of the back, but I'm also working my breath. Now, as I'm doing this, I can increase my pressure or my time under pressure by pulling harder and start to push my abdominal wall back towards my spine and lift my pelvic floor, which is that band like a hammock of muscle between your legs. So I can work internally, the internal part of my, while I'm working the external, the latissimus muscle of my body. And then a total relax. Now there's a static contraction, but with the stick, you can also go up. I'm pulling all the time. It's a dynamic movement. So I thought, what a handy thing. This started as a broomstick. I thought, God, anybody can get a broomstick and do this. Now it isn't like you're going into the gym to 
get ready for a physique competition or a, a powerlifting competition, but you can do it anywhere. You get a stick and it's bedroom, office, in front of a computer, and you're pulling, you're pushing. You're also able to open the rib cage, close the rib cage, work on diaphragmatic breathing. And the more I have this, <laughs> the more I work with this thing, the more it evolves. The stick, the stick in its way has become my teacher in this. Because I think, well, this is, if this was all I would put in a broom closet, give me a stick, and I have to stay in shape, what do I do with it? It's like you hear people uh, being put in prison. So they develop these great jail cell workouts, body weight workouts that become incredibly strong, especially the ones that can't get out of the yard. So it's sort of my minimalist training device. And yet, as minimal as it is, I can train my entire body with, it, with, with this stick. And that is the story of my stick. <laughs> so, so uh, Richard, uh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to ask, um, so you're showing, and I was dropping the link here uh, on the, the DLive for the actual stick that you offer, your breathing stick. Um, is there a specific uh, design that you put into that that makes that unique versus going out and just finding a stick in the in the forest or something or using a broomstick? What what ideally have you done there to um, make this, I guess, more suitable for these types of techniques? I'll tell you. Um, at first, for the f first couple of years, it was a broomstick. And I'm also going to tell you a broomstick will do. But as the system or my method evolved, I thought it would be very handy to have grips. When you do a static contraction, the muscle only is strengthened or the strength maintained at the degree of contraction. In other words, if I'm pulling my stick here and contracting my back here, say this area, it is not working the lower or the very upper back. So in order to make it do that, I have to change either the grip on the stick or the position of the stick. So I thought, okay, I'll put knurled sections so we can change gripping position. So here, there's high, then it slightly moves lower. I could go into here, and I could go into here, and it also, the neural position, aside from the fact that I think that really does, he burns these things, I love what they look like. Anyway, I have, <laughs> my, my house is loaded with sticks. <laughs> anyway, um, every time you change your position, it changes the angle, same the angle of attack on the muscle. Because, as I said, the muscle is only affected within 10 to 15 degrees of the contraction. So that's why I put these change your grip, change the angle of attack on the muscle. But the stick or any kind of body weight exercise is only the periphery. The center of this is the breath. I mean, you could, I watch people in the gym. Great. So they're training their pectoralis and their anterior deltoid. But they're missing out on diaphragmatic breathing. I have, I've had arguments with great strength trainers about this. I think they're coming around now, but 10, 12 years ago. They're going, oh, that's too esoteric. Nobody want to hear that. I was doing a book, because I'm a writer, and I was doing a book with one of the great strength gurus on the East Coast. And he'd written a book. And I said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll publish it for you. And I read it. And I said, it needs a chapter on breathing. And we came unstuck about this. He said, no, no, it's too esoteric. 
you'll, it'll, you'll be the joke of the strength community. And I'm, we're still great friends and he is still the great guru, but we never came together on breathing. I often wondered where he is with it now, but at that point he couldn't see it. So whether it's a stick, whether it's a barbell, or whether it's a machine, the breath is the center. The breath is, is the core of this training. I just think the simplest thing in the world is a stick. <laughs> That's how it came about. Well, my kids, oh. would, lo my kids would love you. They, <laughs> they love sticks. They like sticks. <laughs> so while we're exploring the esoteric uh, nature of sticks, uh, you know, one of my early um, martial arts that I gravitated to was Xing Yi. And a good part of the training was Xing Yi staff training. And one of the first things you learn is that a stick is not an inanimate object because you learn how to project your chi or your energy through the stick. And that stick just becomes an extension of you. So it actually became uh, more of an interactive process. And I still have my Xing Yi staff and, and use it. And, uh, you know, it's like my old baseball glove, you know, from, from my baseball days. It's, it becomes a very cherished part of you that you can never part with. And uh, I have quite an emotional uh, attachment to my Xing Yi staff because it's, I, I don't know how to explain it any further, but that's just the way it is because I put a lot of my energy into it uh, over many hours, over many years. Um, may I say, I... Uh, Barry, I completely get it, and I've looked into that. There's a thing, is it called, uh, it, I may be wrong, psychometry? Is it where you can take an object? I had it done once, it was sort of scary, rather uncanny. Uh, I think it's psychometry, if I have it wrong, I apologize, but took a bracelet I used to wear, and the vibration of the bracelet told a lot about my life, in fact, to almost a, an unnerving place. And when I have people with the stick, I say, this stick will become part of you. That's why I wanted it to be wood and not to be a piece of plastic or a piece of metal because I wanted it to be organic, to absorb. The more I have my stick, the more it becomes my stick. Like your baseball glove became your baseball glove. The more I breathe into this stick, the more of my energy, my life energy, my chi or my ki, or my prana goes into this stick. So the stick and I become inseparable, which ultimately aids in the exercise because the exercise becomes more whole. I'm joined here. It isn't like this is this and this is not going into a gym and taking a barbell that you've never used before. But this is, I know what this stick is for and this stick knows what it's for. So I, <laughs> oh God, here I go. Stick consciousness. <laughs> I love it. Exactly. I just received, I've been using uh, some broomsticks because I refused to, uh, to kind of buy one of Richard's sticks until I was worthy. And <laughs> for Christmas, he initiated me with the stick, which I had to pass multiple tests in order to have this. But it's, they're beautiful sticks besides anything. And I do think there's an energy with them that, uh, that Richard's put, them, put into them that makes a difference. Um, if I may, I'd like to change tact a little bit and talk about some of my uh, initial meetings with Bear and kind of how that led me into a different, different spaces in my life. Uh, some of kind of funny, some are kind of ridiculous and, and how this kind of loops back to Richard and, and into the breathing. So 
if I may, I'd like to riff a little bit about that. Um, once again, when I first met Bear, I went, my gosh, this guy's the healthiest guy I've ever met in my life. Um, and he took blood samples, urine samples, saliva samples to kind of diagnose what was going on with my body and then prescribed a lot of different supplements that would be supportive to um, where I was uh, deficient and then, you know, where, where my strengths were. And one of the things that he proposed at the time was suppositories uh, and uh, coffee enemas, le lemon enemas, and get a colonic. Well, uh, you know, not to be rude, but I come from a family like, <laughs> it's very conservative, and that was a big stretch for me in itself to, to move in that direction. And, and so I went and did all of those things um, and found great benefit, tremendous benefit. And I remember, I think I was also having E3 Live every morning, Bear, I don't know if you still prescribe a lot of these different things for people. Um, but I would certainly like to get caught up in where you are with all of that. But you also, we, we would talk a lot of um, politics and what's happening with the world. And I was certainly, you know, I was traveling the world consistently at that time, probably 10 months of the year from a ministerial standpoint, putting lights onto the planet and doing uh, intercessory work and hitting all pinnacle points of the planet to try and bring uh, God's uh, light, light in and open, open vortexes for those kind of things. But you introduced me to a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. And uh, that screwed me up pretty, pretty heinously. And, and that led me down a different path of how, how do I take the spiritual world and start to make an impact into the, the world of politics and, uh, and finance, because they seem to be the things that were governing a lot of the planet in terms of how society was being shaped. Uh, so I went off to Germany of all places, uh, went to business school in Heidelberg and studied international business and, and uh, economics and, um, and, and world governments and sat in the EU month after month, uh, traveled to England a lot into the House of Lords, consulted with a Lord, um, looked at how a lot of these things were being governed. Then moving from there, I moved to Australia and got into the investment banking world where there was massive corruption. In fact, I was privy to see uh, an, an inside way. I wasn't part of it, thank God, but I was privy to see um, $1.8 billion get washed away of you know people's hard-earned money, kind of the Madoff story of Australia, if you will. And it was very devastating to me. And, and as I was on this journey of trying to infiltrate into these environments, um, I got quite uh, disillusioned, uh, I would say hurt. I'm a very sensitive person, although I can put on a tough exterior and my competitor from the tennis days kind of played a part of that. Uh, and then did some consulting work in Australia where I was disillusioned because people had that Aussie uh, attitude of everything shall be right. Well, you know, which is a lovely attitude and I love that part of me. It's definitely part of my DNA, but not everything will be right. Um, 
And what I found with you, Bear, is that you had a beautiful consciousness to make a difference, yet not, not necessarily get caught up in these environments and stay true on your path. And, and coming then all the way circle vending back to Richard and, and coming across Richard, and I've been back in the United States now for about nine years, and Los Angeles has a vortex for me that I simply love, and Ojai has become a second home to me that I, I truly love. Um, but coming across Richard, all that stuff started to get so head, head heavy in me and then body heavy in me that I was taking on too much junk. And the simplicity of, of breath, the simplicity of just keeping things simple and staying straight to your truth has been a true blessing to me that Richard's brought forth. So I'd love to hear a little bit from you, Bear, around any, any takes on, on what I'm sharing here, where you're up to, and I know your audience knows where you're up to, but I'm, I kind of need to get updated, and how that can correspond with what Richard's doing in terms of breath, because I find it all very fascinating how to keep things simple in, in what can be, um, become quite complex if, if, we, if, we, if our minds are running the show, and I, I've done my best to let my heart run the show. Um, my spiritual heart and my, and my lovingness is what I've always cared about the most. Uh, so please, please maybe tune in there. I don't know if any of that hits a chord no, for you guys, but I'd love to hear more. No, I think it's right on uh, point actually with everything we're talking about. You know, a lot of people that are gravitating towards spiritual practice practices and in, uh, the in inner journey, so to speak, um, when they hear about the the grand conspiracies behind what's going on in the world, it sounds suspiciously negative. Um, you know, there's a great book. Uh, it's called Brother of the Third Degree. And it was written in the 1800s. And long story short, it's uh, about a husband and wife with two children. And uh, the, the journey of the book takes you through the experience of the kids who later on in life find out that their uh, parents were very highly evolved adepts, we'll say. And back in the old spiritual system, um, it was required uh, before you were invited into certain, we'll call it inner circles of people that were ready for certain levels of knowledge, it was required for the students to be um, very schooled uh, in the ways of the world most namely medicine, government, and finance. And you'd say, well, why would a spiritual-oriented uh, school require something like that? Well, if you don't understand what's going on in the matrix and how uh, people are controlled by these forces working through these institutions, then you are going to be a victim of them and you're never going to be uh, able to, you know, uh, realize your sovereignty and rise above it. Of course, the mastery is being able to hear the truth, which becomes quite sinister, you know, when you realize what's really going on. And some of our most trusted people and institutions are all in on it. And that's just a fact, like it or not. But, um, you know, the mastery, again, is to be adult enough to understand and hear the truth, but then not be um, taken into it where it uh, you know, produces negativity in your own life. 
And then, of course, what you're saying, uh, Mark, again, is absolutely true in that simple things, because the truth is absolutely simple, but uh, breath and these practices that we're talking about are the way you stay centered and uh, don't allow yourself to be seduced into a state of negativity just because you're finding out what's really going on in the world. Uh, you know, I've, I've had some, uh, you know, Mike knows, uh, and, and by the way, Mark, forgive me, I know you had to endure a lot of uh, rants and, and uh, you know, deep rabbit hole tales, uh, you know, with me while we're doing our thing there. I and, a lot. Uh, and coffee and <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that aside, um, Mike knows I've been through a lot of hair-raising experiences because I've actually worked within uh, certain inner circles. I've actually seen very close friends assassinated. Uh, I've worked with people uh, working at the highest levels of the G7 banking, and, and you know, and that, those are all tales that are private and and you know not meant for public. But um, you know, I've seen firsthand, not just by watching YouTube videos or something, how the world really works. And I was prepared with certain types of training to go in and function in some of those experiences for a very specific reason. So when I would uh, go off on my tales with you in the past, Mark, it was based on a lot of firsthand experience. And, and, I, and, and even you know, 20 years ago, when I used to bend your about these things, uh, as as the rest of us, we've all gone through a lot of changes and, and maturation, you know, in those years. And I've come to a deeper level of peace myself with, um, you know, why those experiences were and uh, why certain forces do what they do and uh, the role that they play for the rest of us to help wake us up and to get back to the simplicity of truth. Um, um, Richard, do you have any uh, thoughts yourself on all that? Well, you kind of, uh, I haven't had your experience there, you know, with the things that you're describing. The thoughts I have are that as you know, the one thing that you said, and I click on this as I got older, as you have, I've developed more peace through acceptance of the way things are, and the way things are do not have to be the way I am. And that's where it gets into the meditative process. That's where it gets into the breath being at the center of the meditation, at least for me. And when Mark is describing churches and places, I think, well, or, you know, my dojo, my ashram, my church can be my weight room because that's where I simplify. That's where I become close to myself and then close to others if they come to train with me because my wish is that I give them the very best of myself without competition. I mean, I have younger people come in and I, I tell you it's odd because I am competitive by nature and I see them on a, say, on a chest press or whatever and I'm teaching the breath. My God, they're using more weight than I can use. It happens with my own sons. I have a 19-year-old and a 23-year-old. The 23-year-old is very, very much into weight training. And he's finally, he, for years, I thought, oh, I'm still stronger. I'm old, but I'm stronger. Well, I'm not stronger anymore, not in the weight thing. And he's not doing the breath like I do. He does his own because he kind of doesn't need it. I do what I need. 
And that's the evolution as we get older, coming to that peace and that simplicity and also the non-competitive nature, the rising above the ego. The ego is always useful because that's how we socially interact. But to rise above it, which these disciplines force you to do, that's probably getting closer to God. When you actually want to do service, when you're in service to the other person that you're working with or the group of people, that you're not looking, oh, oh God, he's 20 pounds ahead of me. I don't want him to do that last year. I hope he did it. To me, there's a, I don't know if it makes any sense, but there's a church-like element there because there's a goodness there, wanting more for him. And you become a facilitator or more for her or more for the group. And you're a facilitator for them becoming, giving birth to themselves. There's that old Eric Fromm, psychologist. Man's greatest mission in life is to give birth to himself. What you just talked about through all your experiences there is giving birth to yourself. I've had my experiences. They're different than yours. But ultimately, it's giving birth to oneself. And that's the evolution. Now, some people don't evolve. They stay where they were. Because evolution can be a little bit scary sometimes because you're walking into situations, as you just described, that put you to the test. But that's how one gives birth to oneself. I hope I'm not becoming too heady here, but I'm trying to take what you said and apply it to my own life. And, and that's where it applies. Well, one of the things I would say too, is that one of my uh, appealing qualities with you, Richard, is that you have lived a really kind of grandiose life in the sense of uh, you've done many things. You've been a prolific, a prolific writer, a novelist. You've tapped into the, entertainment world and the, and the Hollywood world um, amongst motorcycles to, I mean, you really have traversed and had a lot of different experiences that I would consider uh, in, in, each, in each of those environments have been more in the extreme, which to me is very appealing because you have a lot of experience and yet these practices have stayed true for you through your journey and probably kept you grounded. And I think for anyone who's listening who has a very active mind um, or is a journeyman of this, this life and experience and trying to figure out, not mentally, but just how to take care of oneself through their journey, um, your practices to me, and I hope people tune into what you're offering uh, via your website and or contacting you and your book, um, have are really helping me ground the things that I'm looking at and I couldn't be more grateful. And certainly Bear, you, you, um, <laughs> you, you triggered some things inside of me through all those deep, wonderful conversations around my quest and me looking and finding my own, my own truth. You know, I was with a, a spiritual teacher as mentioned earlier, John Roger, who to me is still the greatest consciousness that I'd ever met on earth and, and even through history, I would put him right up there and, and to try and come back into the world and, and find my own way through all of this has uh, often been challenging and, and you two gentlemen still hold true for me around how to ground myself, how to take care of myself um, through it all. So, so from just a gratitude standpoint or story standpoint, I have tremendous gratitude and I hope other people 
from this podcast can tune into you both in such a way that uh, that it supports them in what their needs are. And, yeah. and Mark, I'm so happy for your introduction with Richard, because as I uh, first time I went through uh, your site, Richard, I saw that, uh, you know, just what you're doing is reconnecting people with the true spirit of uh, training and, uh, you know, what it really represents and what uh, the true goal uh, is of training, you know, not just... Uh, uh, physical culture. You know, a curious thing has happened you know, with contemporary athletes and uh, training circles, and it's become very egocentric. And, uh, you know, I know that because I uh, epitomized that in my youth, you know, in the football world. And, um, you know, old school warrior training that was done in indigenous cultures was the opposite. It was about, I mean, you know, if you want to talk about uh, training techniques and becoming adept physically, they were uh, complete badasses compared to athletes these days, I believe, with what they were able to do. But still, it was the goal was to kill the ego, not to glorify the ego. And, you know, I had a, a very humbling experience when I was um, just retired from football, but I still was carrying a lot of body mass. I was squatting in the 500 pound, you know, excess range. And and started my first martial arts training and the teacher first thing he did is he put me in a horse dance and um you know within a matter of uh, moments because i you know wasn't coupling it with breath and all the things i know how to do now I, my legs were trembling and and uh, meanwhile he's kind of laughing at me because he sort of exposed that i was a 280 pound pussy you know <laughs> and uh so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole different inside-out training, and uh, ego really has no place. And it's okay. You want a healthy ego. Uh, you know, that's how we, you know, define and accomplish certain things within the physical matrix, but it really needs to be put in check and understand that, uh, you know, no matter how strong your ego is, it can be humbled at any moment. And, uh, you know, breath work and everything else is, uh, is you know, a training device, the most sophisticated uh, training device uh, that's ever been known. So we had some good discussions the other day on the phone. And um, that brings me back to horse stances and things which we we're talking about, you know, static uh, exercise versus uh, progressive resistance exercise. And uh, as my body has gone through the changes of what we think of as aging, I just naturally do more of that, you know, work more on, uh, you know, horse stances and, and things like that, that don't require movement so much as, um, you know, tuning inside and, and, and girding from the inside out and, and incorporating breath and all the things you're talking about. So uh, you started to talk about that a little bit, Richard, with, uh, you know, the static versus otherwise so uh, what else could you share with that with us well the first thing i want to share is that when you invited me on this podcast and i already seen a previous podcast and i was kind of blown away with you bear because first of all you're a medical doctor and i'm not a scientist or a doctor and i work on a lot of intuition and then then research what i've intuited and try to find out why the hell it's doing what it's doing what you're talking about you just said when the guy puts you in the sensei puts you in the horse stance well 
way back in my early 20s, I had a Japanese sensei named Sensei Tabata in Boston. And he had a very small dojo because he was pretty, he was tough. I mean, he liked you to fight. And he did a weekend course in, I think it was Boston College or one of the colleges where he rented the gym and six or eight of us on the course in the gym and he locks the doors. So you're in there, you can't get out. And I have to say, one guy crawled out a window in the middle of it because things that he would do, we're talking static interaction, get into a horse stance for one and a half hours. And this is the truth. Wow. If you, okay, so I never knew what it was like, but you know, 10 minutes in, the legs start to tremble. Every time we went down, he would kick us back to our feet. We'd be on the ground and he'd kick, uh. get back up. You'd be amazed. I always say to people, there's two kinds of failure, physical failure and psychological failure. Sometimes when I'm training Mark and I've got him on a weight machine and he's hit eight reps and it's, I can tell it's over, right? He's making, I said, don't groan. And I say, if I put a gun to your head now, God, this makes me sound terrible. If I put a gun to your head now, you do another eight reps. Well, the gun to my head was to bought his foot in my rib cage. And I got the hour and a half in. And, uh, you know, I didn't think initially this podcast was, I thought it would be technical. I was going to talk about CO2. And I thought, oh, God, it could be embarrassing if I get it wrong. But I won't get this part wrong. Because I'm very much into the spiritual aspect of training. And it doesn't make you not a tough guy, more or less a tough guy. It adds another level or another dimension to what you're doing. And I remember during that class, during one of the hour and a half stances, looking at the guy ahead of me, it was the first time in my life I'd ever seen an aura. Now, whatever consciousness this put me in, because of, and it was breath that got me through. I used to control, it intuitively started to control my breath to get through the hour and a half. That was one of my first breath things. I thought, I don't know how to get through, but you couldn't pant your way through or you'd go down. So it'd have to be inhale for four beats, exhale for six, hold. So I was doing a breath exercise that I later read about, but the exercise came to me out of necessity, out of survival, because I couldn't survive. Nobody would. Everybody's falling over and getting back up. And the way I survived it was working my breath, which was part of martial arts to do breaths. When you're attacking or, or defending, you're not thinking about your breath, but when you're paused and waiting for the next strike, you take control of your breath again. That's a becoming master martial arts. And whatever heightened awareness I got to through the breath and through the sustained pain, I looked ahead of me and this guy was glowing. He was orange and red and green. And I thought, my God, I read about this. I thought, there's an aura. I closed my eyes, opened them again. And the aura was still there. And I've never forgotten that. I saw it as plain as his gi is, the white gi, was the aura coming out from him. And I thought, no, I can't tell people this. They won't believe it. But I read about it. The people, you could even, I think it was Curlian photography or something, shows auras. And I thought, I've seen one. So it does exist, this energy field coming out. So somehow, that static contraction and the breath that I learned to do to survive it created a heightened consciousness, allowing me to see something that I'd only read about. And there is, for me, a bit of the spirituality in the training. 
That's why I'm, I'm liking talking to you the way we're talking now, because it's not a scientific discussion. It's more of a spiritual discussion, but it doesn't mean you can't be physically strong, physically fit, and have great endurance. It just means to me there's an entirely different level to training the body than growing muscles and becoming strong and doing 30 pull-ups. The body then becomes a vehicle for the spiritual evolution. And that's how I've always viewed it. Uh, it. It's my vehicle. The lessons I learn, I can't learn without a healthy vehicle. That's why I, one of the things I say, I said, well, no, I'd like to be 100 years old and fully functional because think how wise, that's a master. Think how wise we would be. And I'm not 100 quite yet, but I try to stay functional so I can keep learning. It's about learning. I'm not training to set records. You know, there's plenty of, plenty of records, plenty of guys. I said when I was in karate, early on, I thought you're not gonna be a great freestyle fighter. And I have known great ones. I've, I have sparred with great ones, both in the boxing ring and on the dojo floor. I know what it, I know the reality of it. I know the reality, and I know that my reality was having those lessons, learning from those people, yet it was a spiritual evolution the entire time as it is now. So, so one of the things that's showing up as you're talking there too, Richard, is that I experienced training with you. And, and you know, I, have, I still have a company called Conscious Athletes where I work with professional athletes. And a lot of that is about putting people into uh, rigorous disciplines mentally um, and, and physically, uh, emotionally as well to look, you know, to find the freedom. So, you know, and I do this particularly with golfers and, and tennis players, but you, you hit a ball long enough where you start to find the unconscious takes on and, you know, you start to pattern yourself in such a way that you can be freer and freer in the movement. And what I really appreciate about you is the discipline that you hold to your practices. So people who, um, you know, look at, look at that great story you're just sharing about, you're in a discipline of a certain stance and look what showed up, you know, and that's to me, you know, I do have a master's degree in spiritual science, you know, so how do you look at the spiritual, which is the invisible, which I call the 90% world, which is what is not seen. And then the 10% world of science, which is what we can start to prove uh, on a consistent basis. But your disciplines is supporting me and my body and my consciousness to move into greater freedoms. But it's really coming back to these disciplines. And I know Bear's also a, a disciplined person um, in, in certainly what you've held true for in your practices, Bear. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to talk about freedom and discipline at all, but it's certainly something that I'm, I'm uh, grateful for, for what you hold me to, Richard. You know, and I'm doing these breathing practices, you know, just little bits at a time. I'm up to 10 minutes every morning. Um, and they're quite simple, but my gosh, it helps me start my day. Um, okay. Two things. One of them is that when you say I'm up to 10 minutes, Three minutes is significant of mm. practice because the type of training that I, I, I endorse and that I, I do and that I practice augments everything else we do. It augments your tennis game. It augments your boardroom meeting. It augments walking down the city sidewalk. 
It's an augmentation. It isn't the end in itself. Three minutes is great. I always say to people, start with three minutes. I remember one of my great karate senseis, Mr. Okasaki in Philadelphia. When we all started, we're all so keen. You know, it's all, I'm going to practice this at home. I'm going to do two hours a night. He said, no, no. He said, I know what you're thinking. He said, no, you don't do that. He said, you keep the water warm. Don't boil it. If you boil the water, it leaves the pan. And it's the truth. You get so many disciplines and so many people, and they're so, oh, man, this is it, and I'm going to do this and that, and they're burnt out in months or even years. You know. The question is consistency. It's sustaining a practice. It's developing something that's sustainable, that is applicable to the rest of your life. This isn't about taking that signal, that's it. No. If that stick helps you lift a bag of groceries or push open a door, there's a pull and there's a push. What do I do with this stick? Pull it and push it. That's all we do. We pull and we push. Think about it. You stand up from a chair, you're pushing. Pull open a door. So just practice that and it helps you do the other, particularly when you practice it in conjunction with breath because then it becomes conscious movement. Conscious movement is less injurious. When I think of my motorcycle accidents or even the karate accident that I had to ruin my knee, I became unconscious. How am I riding on the, <laughs> and bang. I remember the first one I had, I was combing my hair in the mirror because I was young, so forgive my ego, but I was. And I went over a curb and that did my left knee in. I remember the dojo incident, I couldn't grapple, we were a striking thing, but I'm sparring with a guy who thought I could throw him now. Yeah, I threw him all right. And, Pulled my, pulled my knee right out of the socket. So I wasn't conscious. And these injuries to me, you know, if, if there's any point in injury, better use them as a lesson because I lost consciousness. When we make mistakes, that's working with Parkinson's people. Parkinson's people fall. Balance is affected. Bone density is affected. So if they fall, or old people, aging people, people like me, Bones lose density. If you fall, falling is the greatest killer of people past 65, but it isn't the fall that does it. It's the hospital stay. It's the fact that you're going to take so long mending. So by training the breath, even if it's three minutes a day, you are training consciousness. That's another reason for the stick. Why the stick? So I'm going like this, up and down with a stick, and breathing. It becomes conscious movement. If I can take that conscious movement, and walk out to my car and open the door consciously and drive down the street consciously, I'm very less likely to have an accident. If I just leave it in the dojo, I remember Okasaki said, don't leave your training in the dojo. I didn't know what he meant. I thought, what am I supposed to beat people up on the street? No, it's the awareness that you develop. Don't leave it in the dojo, don't leave it in the gym. So I would, even a weight room, you know, a real, just let's get at it weights. If you turn it into conscious movement, that consciousness will stay with you. And eventually it becomes your life, consciousness. And that's the only, I, I don't train or teach people because you know I'm a PE instructor. If there wasn't more to it, I would be bored. I wouldn't do it. It wouldn't interest me. I wouldn't keep doing it myself. When you say, oh, I've lived a great big life. Yeah, it's been big and I've had my failures and I've had my successes. 
but it's been the training, the practice that's held it all together. You know, when I was in the rock and roll era and all that, and the drugs and everything else, there was always a part of me that wanted to get to the dojo on Monday, so I couldn't really go to total excess. I wanted to sometimes, but I couldn't. I thought I'm going to be in there and somebody's going to try to hit me, and I've got to be able to do it. So it's consciousness. That's what we're really training with the stick, with the weights, with the breath. We're training consciousness. And then when we apply the consciousness to movement, that movement can be mental or physical. It can be swimming, or it can be sitting in a boardroom doing a deal. It's consciousness. So that is the essence of what I believe and what I, and what I try to teach. Yeah, I would, I would say in this day and age too, where most people are overstimulated, you know, have a neurologically sensory, uh, sensory overload. Um, and there's something really great to learn from this, you know, even uh, being present. And even when you're doing the dishes or like you said, going out to your car, driving, what are people doing? They're listening to podcasts like this or they're, uh, you know, they've got their head earbuds on and, and, and listening to something or doing something. It's so easy to get be always tapped in and not give yourself a break and being aware and being present. But you're right, it's all about practice and all the great masters talk about this where it's like, you know, being present. And, you, you know, I've been recently reading about, well, from stoicism to Zen and like eating food, you know, I'm now not watching something while I'm eating food. I'm being very present while eating and not even drinking uh, while eating. Practices like this get us, you know, touched back into these, these ideas. And I think you hit it right on the head there, Richard, with that, that this is a, a lifelong practice and not just even three minutes in the morning that might set you up for it. But, you know, this day and age, I think it's more important than ever to really start getting back to these more traditional concepts because of just the overstimulus we have all around us. Um, yeah, now you mentioned overstimulus. One of the things I train people, whether it's with waste or whether it's with a stick or whether it's just seated, overstimulus, how many times do we breathe per minute? Most of us, most of us don't know, but the average I think is 12 to 18. So, which means 12 to 18 is quite a lot of breathing. It's almost over breathing. It also keeps us either in or on the cusp of the fight or flight or sympathetic nervous system. So a lot of training, all training, is training the central nervous system, training the nervous system. What I try to get everyone to do is with diaphragmatic and nasal breathing is to take the breaths below 10 per minute. Because if you're down at eight or seven, you are mostly existing in your rest system. And that's so important to me. People don't realize how important recovery is. Recovery, what Mark was talking, he's saying, well, say I do this, say we're gonna do a set of curls, or even that. There's a, there's a static contraction of the biceps. And then there's my triumphant pose on the inhale. So then I'm gonna contract, and I'm gonna contract for 10 seconds. It takes about 10 for the contraction to really dig into the fiber. But then I want to sit and get back to my breath because what I've done is taken up my blood pressure, my heartbeat. Now I want to take it down again. So I have some degree of control over my nervous system because this, that's like a gorilla move. That's like fight or flight. This is rest and digest. So this should be the brief thing that we do. That's brief. That's your stimulus. 
That's stimulus. That's why compared to a shot in the arm of some vitamin, the shot isn't what's going to cure or help you. It's what that shot does is it spreads through your system. And if you're never in the rest system, it's never going to help you. People tell me, oh, I'll go to the gym two hours a day. I, 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 you know, I listen, but I think, well, what the hell are you doing in there? Because you don't need that much stimulus. Two hours a day, you're going to wear out. You're going to exhaust your system. It's not a practice. It's not sustainable. Even if you're splitting your routine. At a certain age, your body can't recover. It's about recovery. It's about, yeah, here's my stimulus. And I need 10 times more recovery than I do stimulus. I just can't work on stimulus alone. So it, it's rest and digest, which is breath, which takes you back into the rest and digest. It's your hack in or your tap in to your rest and digest, your parasympathetic nervous system. I even hate to use the word because just say your rest system. We want to be at rest most of the day, even when we're in stressful situations. Back to the dojo, when you're sparring or fighting. You don't want to be uptight all the time. That's why they can't do 12 rounds or even three in a boxing ring. They put me in the boxing ring with a real fighter for three rounds, and I was exhausted. You know why? Because I'm in fight all the time. He wasn't, because he knew I wasn't going to get to him. So he's in the rest system, just watching. I'm in fight, going, oh, God, he's going to knock me out. Most people walk around thinking they're going to get knocked out at any moment, all day long, whether it's by a boss, an employee, somebody in the street, a car driver. You know, you get into a traffic jam. How long do you stay in that traffic jam in your head after the jam ends and you're driving home? You're like, oh, son of a bitch. That's where the breath comes in. You hack into that autonomic nervous system and get back into rest. So what I do when I train people or when I train myself is put myself with a stick or with a barbell or with a body weight into a fight or flight. And then I consciously take myself back into rest. And my thinking is that with time and practice, I will do that automatically in a situation of stress. I will relieve myself of stress consciously by hacking into that system, you know, elongating the exhale, which is your parasympathetic part of your breath, taking a pause and coming back again. And that's the old thing. All the old cliches are real. Son, you look stressed. Take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. It's about hacking into that part of your nervous system that causes you to rest. I mean, I've found so many of the old cliches to be relevant, but nobody knows what they mean when they say them. But I, you know, you go, God, that's what that means. Somebody knew it because they created a take a deep breath, kid. Um, anyway, that, that's the essence. That's the essence of my training is tap into that rest system. Use the other as stimulants. It's just like what you were talking about before we jumped on live here, uh, the cold therapy with the Wim Hof stuff. That's forcing you. It's literally forcing you to do that because you're just <laughs> abusing yourself in sub-zero <laughs> freezing temperatures. Yeah. Same, same concept. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 those cold showers, as I, after I watched you guys, I thought, damn, I should get into this. I had, and I, I got out of it. It was uncomfortable. And I thought, damn, I'm going to do what I'm doing. So this morning, I went there, you know, for the minute and a half, and it's ice cold. My eyeballs are starting to freeze. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is forcing me into the sympathetic nervous system. I'm, my body, you have to realize, I mean, you don't, but I do, 
everything I do is trying to, my body's going to adapt. It's going to try to adapt. So I'm in this cold shower. What's the body doing? It's trying to adapt. Now, initially, the heart rate's going to go up, but finally, you're going to have the diver's reflex where it's going to go down and you're going to go into the rest. So everything is an adaptation. If you're lifting 100 pounds this week and your body adapts, go to 100 pounds, 110 the next. So my one and a half minute shower will become a two minute, but I'll never get to you guys. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, it's just about adaptation and the nervous system, how the nervous system adapts. That's what fascinates me. That's what makes me want to do what I do. I'm not interested in how many pounds I can lift up. I'm interested in the functionality of this vehicle it learns its life lessons. Yeah. But one of I the know, things you're tapping you... into, Mike, is the, you know, today's society around overstimulus and, you know, obviously the social media world and the phone world. And, um, you know, my day job is that as of a management consultant and corporate strategy. And most people would say, well, what does that mean? But I'm looking at strategies all the time of how businesses and corporations as a culture can be uh, productive, can obviously make profit. Uh, the financial bottom line is always um, a result, but also how do we create um, healthy cultures within those environments? Because they, the old Wall Street model of you know, churn and burn is very damaging to people. And one of the things I'm consistent, I've brought Richard into some corporate environments where we've been starting to implement this work so it's, it's, uh, it's one thing to, to have this as a separate thing, but I'm trying to work away, not trying, but doing, um, implement this into people's lives in such a way that they do have these disciplines that they can adhere to. Um, and I'm finding that, you know, look, it's a challenge. It's a true challenge. And two people that I've looked up to that have, uh, taught me a lot also. One is David Allen, who used to live in Ohio, now in Amsterdam, who wrote a book called Getting Things Done, which was around productivity, but at, at the essence, mind like water, which was how do we become, remain conscious and still be productive. And he built some great systems that I, I've tapped into and used in corporate strategy. And the other person that comes to mind is Ariana Huffington, who's a friend of mine also, who has um, created a company called Thrive and Thrive Global around how to start to headwind some of these the cultural things that are happening uh, in the corporate world. And she started off with, you know, sleeping. You know, how do we get better sleep? But I think there's, there is an emergence going on and, and uh, around all of this stuff that is counter, countering the things that are, that are negative uh, or not supportive to a better way of being. And, and I'm so, once again, grateful that I found Richard to help me discipline into these spaces. But I'd be curious to hear from you too, Bear, what, how your world's spinning and, and what you are um, playing with and, and the people you're impacting or the environment you're impacting with the work that you're doing. Um, boy, I wouldn't know where to start. Uh we're busy on so many fronts and there's some extremely exciting things going on in the world of what I would call real science. You know, the Richard, you were mentioning um, your experience seeing an aura. Well, that's not psychic or 
paranormal or anything of the such. It's just the fact that you're tuning in through breath and movement, um, uh, experiencing the movement of energy that temporarily allows you to perceive in the different bandwidths. And when, um, you, you know, when we all went to school and learned typical sciences, that isn't real science. That was just one side of the equation. And, uh, you know, science as we're taught and science and its pinnacle of what we are taught in the conventional world has basically achieved one thing, and that is how to blow shit up. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you take the other side of the equation, it shows you that you don't have to blow stuff up to gain energy. That includes our own bodies and everything we're talking about today. You know, it's about conservation uh, of energy and, and uh, wise use of energy so that we're cultivating and storing energy, whether it's exercise or applying uh, science technologically to achieve, uh, you know, our energies in the external world. But with regular practice of some of the things you're talking about, uh, both Mark and Richard here, um, over time, it will impede the natural blockades that we have, um, all of us have had engrammed into our neurology uh, along the the major circuit breakers within our body, some people call them chakras, and you know it doesn't matter what terminology you use. But our regular cultivated practice not only stores energy but gets this energy moving. And when that energy moves uh, moves up and down uh, your spine unimpeded, then uh, not only will you have uh, little moments and glimpses of the real world that you never perceived before, like you know, into those other bandwidths you're describing, Richard, but also it will create certain events in the neurology of the brain, particularly the pineal, uh, that starts literally opening up like a, a bud opening up on a flower and secreting certain hormones that then create synapses within the physical structure of the brain itself and then open us up to being an even more receptive or efficient antenna. Um, so a lot of the technologies that, uh, you know, we're employing now are, um, and I won't get into this too much, but just to a, a few little teasers are ways that, you know, with true science, you understand there is no time and space and, and you can project frequencies from a distance. You can do so-called healings from a distance and, you know, people in, in different cultures have known that for ages but now we're able to achieve that with technological assistance, but not technology that's based on electronics and computers. They're very simple technologies uh, like uh, Tesla antennas and things that allow us to meld with the technology the same way, Richard, you meld with your stick and, uh, you know, be, and have a living technology. So technologies of the future are going to require that our consciousness is cultivated in a way, and these are the things we're playing with now, so that you can literally have a unification or a relationship with that technology so that technology is moment by moment depicting your intentions and your focus uh, rather than these external technologies that are doing the opposite where we're giving our power away to them and thinking that we can't live without them. And of course, if you learn two-way science, which we weren't taught, you'd understand exactly why this makes a lot more sense and is actually more real than the one-way science that we're learning these days. You know, another um, comment you made, Richard, was uh, 
how bodies don't recover um, as quickly when you age. And I've certainly had that experience myself. But I would add to that that bodies are not designed to age. And the reason why they don't recover as quickly once you get a few years under your belt is because our body, no matter what, is the most amazing, faithful uh, you know, companion we have that mirrors to us uh, how we are managing our energy. So if I get to a point in my life where I've got white hair and you know, loss of body mass, it's not because my body was designed to do that. It was now telling me that, uh, well, maybe you haven't been the most uh, efficient manager of your energy in your lifetime, and you've been spending more than you've been conserving. And there's no shame in that. Uh, and you know, that's why we play the game is to you know, gain that wisdom. But what you people are teaching is, uh, uh, you know, and what we're discussing here today are ways that people can get wise uh, a little bit earlier if they do listen to their elders and, uh, you know, start um, playing the game a little bit more intelligently early on in life. And then you don't have to go down the same road because humanity of, in the future uh, will not experience the aging, uh, the degradation, and the suffering that we go through in our lifetimes today. Uh, we will uh, you know, not be um, living in a world that thrives on war and all these things that we think are impossible not to experience. Those are all mythologies that we've been programmed with. So it all starts with the self, and that's why what you're talking about today, uh, Richard and Mark, is so important. Uh, going back to the simplicity of breath and movement, using your own vehicle as your personal laboratory, and uh, from there sharing it with the world with a new way of uh, you know cooperative behavior that will evolve this planet and allow this planet to achieve its real destiny. Because right now it's been hijacked, and that's okay. Uh, whatever it takes to wake us up. But you know, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm a little weary of the same old game. So, uh, yeah, it all goes back to real science, and uh, the real science is our own personal laboratory. And what you're talking about today, Richard, is right on. Well, um, I I'm going to say something to you, Bear. I love listening to what you say. And if I hadn't researched you, and I would advise anybody listening to this to type, Bear Lando into the Google and look where you've come from. I looked at you in the football picture. My God, you must have had a 23 inch neck. And then I looked at you in the weightlifting picture. I mean, if my 23 year old son wants to see the real deal, you're the real deal. Credibility is a big issue with me always. When I listen to someone, if I want to believe what they're saying, I want it to be credible. I don't want it to come out of a book. I want it to come out of experience. And that's what makes the wisdom of an elder. And so when I first listened to you, it was a two hour podcast and it was on breath, embryonic breath. And I thought, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about and he's done what he's talking about. And then I went deeper and I looked at him, look what he's been. Look at the 500 pound squat. Look at the football guy, the massive man. And here he is talking like this. 
And that's where it comes from. So credibility to me is nine-tenths of the law. I, I don't like to listen to people that I don't. I look back and I think, well, what are they, you know, they haven't done anything. What have they done? You know, this is spouted out of, you know, you can read this in Rumi or whatever, out of the yoga manual. But if they've actually done it, then I actually listen. And so I actually listen to you. <laughs> That's what I'm getting to because you've done it. Well, thank you, Richard. I appreciate that. And uh, some of us that have pioneered some of these things, you know, we've also taken a lot of arrows in our back. So I guess the message is, is uh, anybody can do it more wisely and not have to take as many lumps along the way and, uh, you know, uh, move the ball a little further down the field. So uh, while we're on the breath, though, um, you know, I, I know that you studied all the, the breath techniques and, and so forth. So do you um, incorporate any particular uh, mode of breathing or school of breathing or find that different ones work for uh, different aspects of your system? As I said, first thing I start with, no matter who I train or what group I'm training or whether I'm training myself, which I did this morning, is stay with the notes with nasal breathing. But the tap in to the nervous system, I want to keep this simple so even I could understand it if I was listening. So the tap into the nervous system is the slow exhalation and the pause at the end of the exhalation. There's your rest system. So what I like to do is train quite vigorously. I don't take a great deal of time between sets of exercises, whether it's with the stick or whether it's with machines or whether it's with a free weight or my body weight. But during my training, I like to stop and sit on a stool and see if I can tap back in to the rest system before I go and train again. And a lot of this stuff came, here's boxing, watch a boxer, what do they do? It's a three minute round and they sit on the stool. Watch what happens on the stool. Somebody will pull their shorts away and say, breathe. That's lower abdominal breath. They'll splash water in their face. That's the diver's reflex to make the heart rate come down. They may not know that they're doing it like the guy who told me, breathe through your nose. He didn't know why he said it. It's just that he learned. Boxers breathe through their nose because it's a more efficient way of breathing. Yeah, I, the answer is yes. I use, in my morning practice, I'll sit and I'll just count breaths for say 16 to 20 minutes, counting breaths. It's a simple meditative exercise. I close my mouth. I put my tongue to the roof of my mouth behind my teeth which is an attachment to the vagus nerve. I don't want to get too technical. A little vagus nerve is the wandering nerve. It comes right down through your heart, right into your intestines. It controls the heartbeat, blood pressure. It's the vagus nerve. To contact the vagus nerve, slow exhalation, pause, tongue in the roof of the mouth. Roof of the mouth has nerves in it that contact the vagus nerve. So you want to connect. So I'll do that for, say, 20 minutes. Say I do 108 breaths. That's uh, traditional breathing practice. At the end of that, I will do uh, what's called in yoga the great lock, which is the contraction of the pelvic floor, that hammock of muscle between your rear end and your pelvis. And I'll push my abdominal muscles back towards the spine and then lock my throat. So I'll do that maybe three minutes. Then I'll do the embryonic breath that you described. And I have to tell you, I wasn't doing it until I watched your podcast. I go, there you go. 
which is sort of the reverse of what I'm doing. It's like bringing the abdomen back while I breathe in, concentrating the pineal gland. At the end of that, I, I probably chant OM, which I, I sort of am self-conscious about publicly when I teach classes. I, I always say, well, here we go. Now it's like, you know, so as to, now we're going to do OM. But OM is a wonderful vibration. When you start to think in things in terms of vibratory fields and vibration, the it's a wonderful vibration. You can feel it in the pineal, the third eye. You can, so I'll do that. And then I may have a couple minutes of just normal breathing. I just want to be normal. I want to let go of thought. And at the end of that, I generally do the potato breath hold, that oxygen, body oxygen level test, which is on a normal breath, you exhale and you do not inhale again until your body starts to trigger little diaphragmatic spasms from the vagus nerve, right? And you don't hold out, like you don't go macho here and hold it, oh, I can still go another 10 seconds, but I'll die. But it's supposed to be, when it gets slightly uncomfortable and your body is telling you to breathe, you breathe and you have a look. If you're under 10 seconds, you're not doing so well. If you're under five, you're on your deathbed. 20 seconds is, what a lot of athletes are able to do. 30, you're getting there, and at 40, you're pretty good shape because you're able to tolerate carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide, of course, is the thing that makes us breathe. It's not, we don't need oxygen. You need to get rid of the carbon dioxide. So all breathing exercise, even in the gym with the weights, is to develop a carbon dioxide tolerance. We want to tolerate it better, which gets our breathing down to seven breaths a minute or six or eight, but under 10. So that's my practice. That's basic. The morning practice is pure breath. Then I go from there into movement. I even hang from a bar and breathe. I mean, I, I have movement that I use or static movement, but it's moving the energy through my body controlled by the breath. Amazing. One, one thing I wanted to do too for our Patreons is maybe we could, um, after this, do a quick little thing for just the Patreon members, maybe uh, the three minutes you were talking that Mark does or something like that. I know you kind of just hit it over the head there, but I did want to hold something back for our Patreon users. So maybe if you could think of something, Richard, that would be amazing. Um, but that is fascinating. So uh, how long do you hold for? <laughs> and are you at the 40 seconds? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, this morning I was at 46. But here's the funny thing with the holding, and Barrett gets into ego. Yeah, I could probably go 55. But that's me going, I'll beat the 46 I did yesterday, no matter what it feels like. Well, the whole thing with the hold is you got to be honest. Some days I only get in the 30s. I can generally go for a 30. You know, 30, 35 in the middle of the day. But if you want to play ego, you can go, okay, I'll well, hold him. It's a breath hold comment. It's not a competition. It's really when you feel the diaphragm starting to contract and you want to breathe, you do it. So, yeah, I, I'm generally, uh, I think what the, uh, is, the potato method is actually the book, and I have to credit it for a great deal, is Patrick McGowan's book, Oxygen Advantage. And that's where I learned the body oxygen level test. And really 40 is your gold standard. And then your immune system is good. And it is true, I don't get sick much. 
but he says if you could do that consistently for six months, then you're somewhere. It's not like the odd whole moment at 43, maybe yesterday at 12. No, every day I sit. And it's also not after. Now, here's the difference with the Wim Hof thing. Wim Hof is now, or sorry. Yeah, it's all mouth. In the three parts, boom, boom, boom. Yep. And at the end of that, you've washed the carbon dioxide out of your body. So you're not being triggered to breathe again. So sure you can hold it for two minutes or three minutes or four minutes. But if that's the difference between that and the potato, the potato thing is you're keeping normal levels of carbon dioxide. That's the difference between the two methods. And they're both valid, absolutely valid. But one has retained carbon dioxide and the other is really is cleansing. And in yoga, they have the fire or lion's breath. I can't remember what it, which one it is, but it's cleansing the carbon dioxide. And of course, it's gonna take a long time. So when you're doing the body oxygen level test, you don't want to hyperventilate prior to it where you're gonna get a 40 second hold. You wanna do it as I'm sitting here now. You go, okay, Richie, put on your clock, tell us what you do. Well, I'd probably be 20 plus now because I'm a little excited from being on the podcast and talking. So I wanna take maybe a few minutes, calm myself down, but I don't wanna hyperventilate. So that's the body oxygen level test. It's normal breathing and the cessation of that at the end of an exhale and how long you can sustain that. And that means your body is tolerant of carbon dioxide, which is where you want it to be. Um, yeah, maybe, uh, like I said on the Patreon, you could just show us that. We have some people uh, that are in the chat here wondering a little bit more info on that. I know you have a whole course too, correct, um, that uh, you offer uh, that is the, um, the real part of your real strength now online course. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, what I've done is I've made a, a couple of extensive videos and I have a lesson section which has all this in, including hyperventilation, including the holds, including ways to use your breath after exercise, after gym exercise. I, yeah, it's, it's all in the real strength now, of course, or the video. It's called a master class. I have one for Parkinson's as well. Wonderful. We'll put the, the, all those links in the show notes here for those listening or watching later on YouTube. Um, and selfishly, I'm going to take your time real quick. I'm actually getting into uh, kind of long distance trail running right now. And so um, any advice for that type of workout where I'm doing prolonged 10, 10 15 mile trail runs with elevation, um, I'm finding that I'm going to mouth breath a lot doing that as I'm my cardio is getting tapped out. Would you say in doing that, is there a way to kind of increase the cardio through breath, some techniques there? Also, um, stay away from the mouth breath, or I feel like I sometimes that really helps me actually when I'm really hitting it hard on the trail. Okay, what I would say is this, and a lot of Olympic athletes have started this. So you're doing distance running. You're not gonna like it, but the way to, if the nose is superior because it creates more back pressure, it limits the oxygen flow. You know, you, you can go up a lot in there and the nose is gonna prohibit it. Then when you wanna to go to your mouth, slow down, just slow down to a near crawl. When you feel good again, run again. Mm. And this will get you into nose breathing, the entire thing. Now, if you're gonna sprint, if you're sprinting 100, meters 
I think it's great. It's perfectly fine to be chugging the breath at the end, but you're not sprinting. This is long distance. This is like a lifespan compared to a day. So if you want to nose breathe, it's a wonderful way to train yourself to nose breathe. It's anti-ego because you're locked into 20 minutes to dead. Because you're going to slow down, but eventually you'll be able to do the entire run with your nose. And I think there's a wonderful book. And I, is it the Takamura Runners? It was this wonderful book. And they're all know they run days at a time and they never open their mouths. Days. Wow. So, Richard, back in, um, oh, I guess the 80s when we were uh, working with a lot of athletes in our clinic, a lot of pro athletes. Uh, we had a technique. I think I mentioned this on our breathing podcast or on one of them, but we used a heart monitor to um, establish, uh, you know, where your uh, heart rate was, uh, you know, before you hit that threshold, you go into pure sympathetic, uh, yeah, sympathetic. And then also, uh, you know, breathing through the nose was the other monitor. As soon as you have to open your mouth, that's, that's the other key. So we'd go out and train and you'd wear the heart monitor. And uh, a lot of us that were well-conditioned athletes, we'd find, you know, we'd be on the track, we'd be doing interval training or, or you know, whatever, even doing squats in the gym. And what you'd uh, find out is that you're hitting the wall, sympathetic uh, nervous system wall speaking immediately, and then also going into mouth breathing pretty immediately. So what we did is we took months at a time to literally just come to a walk if we had to, to get back into parasympathetic and also get to the point where we could just, um, you know, breathe through our nose. And it took a lot of patience in taking type A, uh, type, uh, a athletes and, you know, and have them do that. And I, I know myself, especially, I just felt like it was ruining my workout because I couldn't, you know, really go out and tax myself. But sure enough, over time and a little patience, uh, we got to the point where not only are you um, operating in a much more efficient uh, manner and that you can go out and push it and stay in, you know, uh, parasympathetic heart rate and also breathe through your nose. But if you were in a competitive event and you had to all of a sudden fire on all cylinders, you had a higher threshold. So that uh, hitting the wall was way up here versus before you'd hit the wall sooner. So, you know, in, in a competitive situation, if you have to put on the afterburners, you've got a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more oomph there. And it really worked. Uh, very few athletes really had the ability to stick with it and do it, though, because it was, it was more tough on the ego, I think, than anything else. I, um, I, you're also talking about heart rate variability, variability there. I, I, I yeah. So, yeah. Okay. And here's come personality types. I'm sympathetic. So I am zero to 60 in three seconds and then it's over. I'm a sprinter. Uh, I, I have a great friend who is, uh, used to be the Dean of admissions for UCLA medical school. And I said to him, you know, when I go, I, I don't like doctor's offices. So when I go to a doctor's office, I take my, blood pressure and it pisses me off because I'm not in trouble doing the breathing still way high and I go come back in 10 minutes and I said to him I don't get it why he goes because Richard he said I've known you for years you're a sympathetic type I said what's it good for he said fighting 
And I thought, fighting? When you think about well, only in martial arts, we want it to end quick. There's no difference between, I'm trying to control this now. Like I am a student of my own teaching, by the way. I'm not like the grand master of anything. In fact, like a lot of people who, who practice, I practice what I need. I am very, I am a high, strong, emotional, and imaginative, creative sort. So it behooves me to have some control of that. So what you're talking about, that's why I said the ego gets in there, is what you're talking about, is the athletes trying to control that sympathetic response. And that's what Mike's talking about. He's running up there, he's not gonna wanna, I don't think so, he probably tried, but he's not gonna wanna stop when he's in a, in, on, the, on a roll. Oh man, I'm about to use my mouth. So what I would suggest, Mike, that's not supposed to be ringing, I thought I turned it off. Um, what I uh, suggest, is that some days you do it and some days you don't, and let yourself improve like that. Um, I'm sorry about this. I've turned the phone off, but oh, good. Uh, some days do it and some days don't do it. Do you know what I mean? Some days stay with your nose and some days let yourself roll because you'll find the roll will improve anyway and you'll probably get another 30 yards or whatever it is out of your nose breath. Mm. I, I, take it easy on your ego. You know, don't, mm. don't. Any of these things, don't just cut in. It's heavy on my ego that I have such a sympathetic response. I think, why aren't I in control? The great master, right? I'm not a great master, but in the dojo, in the martial arts, I was always off the mark fast, limiting myself to what I could do because I never, I wasn't looking, I lost consciousness. It's the loss of consciousness. So by controlling that response, you carry, you keep your consciousness consciousness. I think he's everything awareness. It gets back to awareness. And awareness gets back to the breath, whether it's running or fighting or playing chess. Yeah. You know, what we always try to emphasize is that things are always variable and we all come in with different equipment. And it's good to understand how to perceive yourself uh, physically and on all the other levels so that you can adapt different. Uh, techniques and lifestyles to, that are better suited to you. So a lot of athletes are natural mesomorph type A uh, sympathetic dominant people. And, uh, and it also has to do with glandular dominance. You know, for instance, Richard, you know, I've just noticed you when you hold up your hands uh, like mine, they're kind of like a little more squared off and, and that sort of thing, which is a clear adrenal dominance sort of glandular type versus if I look at Mike, he has uh, longer more uh well you're you kind of a it. mixture you can say effeminate that's fine um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know we all have different uh types and and depending on where you are on the scale then you know how to accentuate uh lifestyle practices exercise and diet in order to uh, achieve a greater balance and for us uh uh, more adrenal dominant people, uh, everything you're saying is right on. Whereas some other people, uh, you know, might want to purposely jack up their sympathetic nervous system a little bit, uh, you know, and do it periodically. So yeah, anyway, I just wanted to bring uh, uh, that point up. It's we're all different yeah. and uh, no flavor works the best for everybody. Yeah, got that right. Well, hey guys, we're coming up on two hours here. Uh, man, uh, we could talk all day. 
and in fact, I would love to have you both probably separately as guests again. I think Mark has so much to offer on so many levels that we didn't touch on today. I think it would be great to have you back on, Mark, to really go down some rabbit holes. And of course, Richard, uh, you as well. I mean, it's just, you both are just such fascinating characters and you fit so well into everything we talk about. I think it would be amazing to have you both back on and continue this relationship. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we probably should wrap it up. And then um, we'll, like I said, we'll do a little extended uh, play for our Patreon uh, subscribers as we're trying to give them more support. And that really helps us out so we can continue doing this show and continuing our mission to uh, you know, bring this information out to the world. Um, but yeah, I want to let's let's wrap it up here. Mark, any parting words for our audience? More than anything, just gratitude for for Bear and and for Richard, and and thank you for um, having me today, and and thank you, Mike, for you know your your skill set of putting this all together and, and your consciousness that that is uh, allowing this to be broadcasted. It's something that I often don't speak about these kind of inner worlds, uh, unless it's on a personal front. So this, so this for me is a little bit of a, a vulnerability test, but I'm happy to do it. And, and uh, my thing is, you know, at the moment, I, I want to showcase Richard as much as possible because he's been beyond a friend, you know, uh, in terms of bringing me back into a, a space of, of consciousness that is aligned with who I truly am. And, and, how I can be better at that in the world. So just have, just end with gratitude and thank you for having me. Wonderful. And, and Richard, any parting words? Yeah. Um, I want to, Mark has meant as much to me as I have to him. Mark's a true guy, a real guy and a real friend. And Bear was that inspirational to me in the two hour clip that I saw with you as you are. Mike, I mean, the 10 minute shower is alone. <laughs> and I'm really grateful to come on and just to get my stuff out there. I mean, it means a great deal to me. I, I have, you know, my thoughts about, well, I've come to this age and here's what I'm doing. And then I think, yeah, and you couldn't be doing anything more worthwhile for you or for anyone else. So I want to thank you a lot for, for hosting me. And my final four words breathe through your nose <laughs> very good um yeah and you know what i just want to thank you guys for coming on it's been truly entertaining we've had an amazing chat going uh and d live here and for those listening on the uh, podcast here we do do this as a live podcast on a platform called d live and this platform is something that we're really embracing as an alternative to the more technocratically controlled options like YouTube, even though we do premiere this on YouTube at 5 p.m. on Thursdays as well. So if you are on YouTube, you can catch us there, uh, as well as um, you can go to our website, alphavedic.com, and see everywhere we're at, join our mailing list, et cetera, for uh, notifications on future shows. We have a vibrant community growing quickly on Telegram, which is a really great app for community building. And you can find us there at t.me forward slash alpha Vedic, A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C. We're really all about community, guys, and growing community. And I feel like I really see you guys as you know becoming a part of this greater community that we're looking to build amongst practitioners and philosophers and 
uh, people of all, from all places that are really seeing this vision of coming together to bring all this knowledge and wisdom and um, connecting it with these technologies that Bear was mentioning earlier and with these, uh, these new community building tools like Telegram and DLive here. I think it's really a positive force for the future we're going. And um, I really just appreciate you gentlemen and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. And once again, you can catch this on YouTube. And of course, this will play as a podcast. For more information, just go to our website, alphavedic.com. And for those interested in joining our co-op, you can join us at Patreon patreon.com forward slash alphavedic. We're going to continue to talk a little bit on there. So uh, if you want to support us, that's a great way to do so. Uh, and that's uh, joining us on Patreon. Thanks again, and uh, everybody have a wonderful, blessed day. Cheers.